God, thank you that we are your sons and your daughters. God, thank you that no matter what we are going through, you're always with us. And God, I pray that as we just sang, in those moments when the lies are speaking louder than the truth, God, I pray that you'd help us to remember that you're always with us. In those moments when, you, when we can't see past the dark of night, Lord, remind us that you are always by our side. That the gospel is more powerful than anything that we ever encounter. And that there is nothing that is beyond your power. Now, Lord, as we enter into a time of studying your word, Lord, I pray that you would convict us in the places that we need conviction. That you would encourage us in the places that we need encouragement. That you would empower us to live out this gospel to offer our entire hearts to you, and Lord, to be unified in the shared allegiance to Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to the After Church this evening. I'm glad to see so many faces gathered here tonight. Um, So before we really start with the sermon today, I want to give us uh, kind of a heads up on what is happening over the next uh, several months in terms of where we'll be going in Scripture. Uh, Maybe you are one of those people that likes to get ahead and you like to know what is coming. Uh, Maybe you're like, uh, maybe you're someone who likes to know what's there before you get there. Maybe you're somebody who could care less what I preach as long as I don't bore you. Wherever you fall, uh, here's uh, what is ahead. In two weeks from tonight, I will be starting a series that I have been praying over for quite some time. Um, It will be called One God Under Nation. In about eight weeks, there is a presidential election. You heard it here first. I know this is the first you've heard that there is a presidential election this year, but guess what? There is. Um, No, I'm sure you're tired of hearing about it, that you're sick of all of the ads and the rhetoric and everything on Facebook. Um, And so we also, on top of that, are in a social climate here in 2020 that is as tense as a climate as I can ever remember. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And there's some wonderful things that are being accomplished and discussed because of this social climate. But I think you'll agree that there's a lot of things that are boiling over that have been bubbling under the surface for quite some time. And so as Christians, it has become more difficult than ever to navigate the political world. It seems more and more difficult the more time that goes on to maintain our integrity with our voting. Um, We're all wondering to some degree, how do I live out my faith in political and social issues? What does it mean to be an American and to be a Christian? And has the church conflated the two, being American and Christian? And so we're going to spend the six weeks that are leading up to the election trying to answer some of those questions. Now, I can promise you this. I will not be telling you who to vote for. I will not be telling you who not to vote for. Quite likely, I will not even be mentioning politicians by name. And regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, whether very conservative to very liberal, my prayer is that this series will challenge you and offend you wherever you happen to stand. So um, that will start in, uh, in two weeks. Last week, we finished up a series on parenting. So that leaves a two-week gap today and next week. 
And so I thought, well, what am I going to preach on for two weeks? There's not a lot of real series that you can get into in a two-week time period. And um, so I thought, well, what should I do? So I did the wise thing. I asked my wife. Um, She's much closer to God than I am and far more intelligent. And so I said, babe, what do you think I should, I should preach on? And she said, well, if you're going to talk about politics for six weeks, it's probably a good idea to lay some foundation before you get there to talk about the importance of community and unity, being unified in the Lord, building, strengthening, engaging in, emphasizing community, especially during a time when so many of us are spread apart. How do we not forsake meeting together, even if some of us are watching from home? How do we strengthen our relationships, and how do we meet the needs of our community in the midst of this? And I thought, man, she is as smart as she is pretty, and that is very. So I prayed over it. I looked over some of my old sermon notes and uh, pieced together some ideas about community. We've talked a lot about community in the life of this church, but so much bears repeating. So for the next two weeks, tonight and tomorrow, uh, I'm sorry, next week, (laughs) um, we'll be talking about the importance of community. And even though some of what I say is going to be familiar to some of you who've been with us for a while, I hope that it will still be fresh and relevant. It has been, uh, today, 27 weeks since the pandemic forced our church and many other churches to go completely online. And for 15 weeks, we were exclusively online. And it was certainly by necessity because it is not something I would ever choose to do again. Um, I think we did the best that we could considering the circumstances, but I think you'll agree that it wasn't the same. Church was not designed to be an online experience. It, it's, it's not as simple as just saying it's not the same. I, I think it's clear that it's not what we were made for. It's not what we were designed for. We were created for relationship. We were created for togetherness. We were created to be in person. And so these circumstances have forced us to do things that we wouldn't have otherwise had to do. But I think we'll agree that we long to just be together again. I long for the day when our entire church can be in the same room. For the day when we can take our masks off. When we no longer have to social distance. Because we were created for social closeness. So in the midst of all this... In the midst of of having to stand six feet apart, in the midst of having to meet together on Zoom far too much, and we all are experiencing Zoom fatigue, let's not throw community out the window. Let's, Let's emphasize it. Let's press even deeper into it than we ever have before, even if we have to wear masks and stand six feet apart. So, have you ever asked the question, what is God's will for my life? Raise your hand if you've ever asked the question, what's God's will for my life? Pretty much every believer has asked that question at some point. We all want to know. We all want to know what God desires for us. We want to know what his plan is. We want to know where do I fit in his story. Did you know that there is a passage in the Bible that explicitly, directly 
spells out the clear answer to that question. A passage that you can look at with absolute certainty knowing this is about me. This is for me. Tonight we'll be looking at one such passage. Uh, It is the high priestly prayer of John 17. As you're turning there to John 17, um, I'll try to frame this uh, a little bit. About 100 miles south of Rome, there is a small town called Roseto Valfotore. Historically, Roseto Valfotore was a very poor, medieval, uh, typical small town Italy village. The main trade of the town was uh, marble quarries, and so this mining town offered kind of a hard life. In the late 1800s, word reached the Rosettans about a place which offered them a new chance at a better life. The name of that place was America. And so in January of 1882, about a dozen of them boarded a boat headed for the New World, to New York City, to begin a new life. They spent their first night there in New York City, sleeping on the floor of a Manhattan tavern owned by Italians. But they didn't linger long in New York City. They learned that in Pennsylvania, just uh, a short trip away, one of the growing trades was slate mining. And they happened to be experts in mining, and so they moved there and began to work. Shortly after, that group of a dozen turned into about 30 the following year. Even more after that the following year. And within 10 years, about 1,200 Rosettans had immigrated. And they trade the marble mines in Italy for the slate mines of Pennsylvania. Before long, the Rosettans had established their own little village, which mirrored their village back home. There were clustered homes, narrowed streets, a church named after the street, so on and so forth. And not surprisingly, they named this little town in Pennsylvania, Rosetto. It was almost as if they had taken their village from back in Italy, uprooted a piece of it, brought it to America, and planted it here. Imagine you are walking along in rural Pennsylvania, and you pass each uh, each town, each village, and it's Amish, Amish, corn, Amish, boom, you're in Italy, just like that. Italian culture, Italian festivals, bakeries, vineyards for local wine, weekly screenings of the Godfather trilogy, everything that you would find in an Italian town, as, as I imagine it. But there was something else about this village that was incredibly unique. And that was that people in Rosetto hardly ever died of anything except old age. And so a doctor and researcher named Stuart Wolf uh, had been spending his summers in Pennsylvania, not far from Rosetto. And he heard from a friend who was a practicing physician in the area that he had seldom ever treated anyone from Rosetto under the age of 65 for heart disease. Now, to put this in perspective, this was happening in the 1950s, a time in which heart disease was the leading cause of death in the United States. It was rampant. 
by far the leading cause of death for men under the age of 65. It, it was an epidemic unfiltered cigarette smoking, lack of knowledge about cholesterol and high blood pressure, all uh, aided uh, in, in all of this. But, but in Rosetto, hardly anyone ever died of a heart attack. And, and for those over 65, the amount of deaths from heart disease was less than half of that of the rest of the population of the United States. In fact, more than that, the death rates for any cause was 35% less. The, the suicide rate was virtually zero. Drugs were almost non-existent. Even crime rates were next to nothing. No one in Rosetta was on welfare. Very few of them even had ulcers. This place was the virtual opposite of the rest of the nation. And the leading cause of death was old age. And so Dr. Wolf and a sociologist friend of his endeavored to find out why this little Italian village was such an outlier. And so they began to to gather data from the Rosettans, death certificates, genealogies, medical records. They began taking blood tests and EKGs, whatever they could find to gather data. And the results of their research were stunning. Just as we talked about, there was hardly a trace of heart disease and the people were incredibly healthy. So Wolf examined whether their diet was uh, to blame, to see if they were eating healthier or whether their genetics were unique. But what he found out is that their diet was no better than anywhere else in the country. They cooked with lard, they ate exorbitant amounts of red meat and sweets, just like any of us would. In fact, most of them were actually overweight and didn't exercise much. They also, most of them, smoked very heavily. Then he compared genetics with other Rosettans that lived elsewhere in the nation. And he found that outside of that town, other Rosettans were not having the same longevity of life. So maybe he thought it's regional. But then he found that every other town in the region was totally normal. And so, finally, Dr. Wolf realized what it was about this town that was unique. The one thing in Rosetto that led to quality of life. And it wasn't diet, it wasn't exercise, it wasn't genetics or location or red wine. The answer, he found, was community. In Rosetto, there was a deep sense of unified community. People stopped and talked on the street. They lived close together. They shared meals together. Most homes had three generations living together under one roof. Nearly everyone in the town uh, attended church on Sunday. There were 22 different civic organizations for a town with less than 2,000 people. And so by the end of this study... Wolf had concluded that unified community led to a quality of life that nothing else could produce. When a group of people has a unified, deep sense of community, it makes them happier, healthier, more productive, and unique from the rest of culture. Could it be that in Rosetto was the secret to a full life? Almost. 
They certainly lived lives that were fuller than most, but this town serves as a model only in a temporal way. And what I'd like to show us this evening is sort of a heavenly Rosetto effect. And that that heavenly Rosetto effect is what Christ desired for us. So, let's open up the word and read one of the few passages in the Bible that is indeed about you. Uh, And so we'll read the entire chapter of uh, John 17. And like I've said before, I know that this is a lot of scripture to read out loud. But you can't complain about me reading a lot because if you do, you're a terrible Christian. So, John 17 beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that have, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, 
and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So let's uh, set the stage a little bit. This passage takes place directly before the arrest of Jesus and is usually called the high priestly prayer. Quite likely, he is praying this prayer on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They've just been in the upper room having the Last Supper, and now they're traveling to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be with his disciples right before uh, he is arrested. The reason I say it's probably on the way is because if we were to go back to chapter 14 in verse 31, as they're in the upper room, uh, chapter 14 ends with him saying, rise, let us go from this place. And then in chapter 18, verse 1, we see them arriving in the garden. And so they are on their way, quite likely, and they're walking and talking. And Jesus is having this incredibly heartfelt discussion, this this incredibly heartfelt conversation with his 11 remaining disciples. As he's talking to them, on the way he stops and he prays. And the disciples get this incredible peek into the heart of Jesus as he is pouring out his heart to the Father. And right there in front of them, he prays for them passionately. But he also prays for another group. Now I said uh, at the beginning that this is a unique passage because in this passage we actually find Jesus praying for every single one of us. This prayer is split into three sections. In the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his 11 disciples that are with him. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for, quote, those who will believe in me through their word. There, of course, is referring to the disciples. So those who believe in me because of the words of the disciples. For those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, that's all of us. Every single one of us believers falls into that category. We believe because of the work and the words of the disciples. We are reading them today. So this passage is incredible. We can, we can literally look at these verses and say, Jesus is praying for me. These are words that Jesus had me in mind when he spoke. That in his infinite wisdom, he actually pictured my name and face as he prayed these words. And so what that means is that in these verses, we have the answer to the question that we started with. What is God's will for my life? What does God want for me? The answer is here. So I want us to specifically focus on verses 20 through 26. Because again, verses 20 through 26 is about us. So let me read those verses one more time. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Hopefully you noticed that in these six verses, there is something that Jesus repeats over and over and over again. What was it? Any guesses? There's a single word. One. He says the word one. Let them be one. So out of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for, what he prays for is unified community. But it's more than just unified community for the sake of unified community. It's deeper than the unified community that we find in Rosetto. What Jesus specifically prays for is that we have unified community together in him. He prays that our foundation for unity is a shared oneness with God. Now, there are so many things that we could think that Jesus would have prayed for us. Out of all the things that Jesus could have prayed, there's so many options. We, we might think, well, what Jesus would pray for us, he might pray, Lord, make them great evangelists. Father, bless them with wisdom. Bless them with big churches. Help them to be universally liked. That would be nice. But out of all the things that he could have prayed for us, this is what he repeats over and over and over again. In just six verses, he uses the word one and phrases like I in them and I in you. When we put those together, there are no less than 12 references to unified community with the Godhead. 12 references in six verses. That is what you call emphasis. So again, we need a a little bit of perspective here. This is taking place the night before Jesus was going to die. And Jesus knows this. This is not the time to waste words. This is not the time to just talk about anything. This is the time when the most important things rise to the surface. Um, A couple of days ago, on Friday, I'm sure all of us took some time to reflect on the events of September 11, 2001. That was one of the most tragic days of our lives. It's a moment that every single one of us remembers. And, and as I was looking online, you know, there were lots of posts I saw where people were sharing stories or, or asking e- each other to share stories about where were you when the towers fell? 
when the world stopped. And so all these people are, are sharing uh, their perspectives. I was, I was at school or, or I was at home or I was at work and, and we all remember the day when the world stopped. And there were so many incredible things about that day that, that impact all of us. I remember reading one time about the last phone calls that were made by the passengers of United Flight 93. United Flight 93 was hijacked uh, with the intention of crashing it into the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. But instead, passengers fought the hijackers and the plane crashed into a field in, in Pennsylvania. Before these passengers fought off the terrorists, a number of them were able to make phone calls to their loved ones using the, the air phones that, that were in the, the seat back in front of them. They knew that they were about to crash. They knew at this point that they were at the end of their lives. And I cannot even imagine what that would feel like. I, I read stories where um, men and women were calling their spouses, telling them that they loved them, there was one lady that called her husband and she said, raise our kids the right way. Raise our kids the right way. There was, there was another couple that just kept repeating to each other over and over and over, I love you, I love you, I love you. Just over and over saying, I love you. And I'm trying to picture myself in that scene. And guys, as I was reading this, I, I'm, I'm fighting back tears reading this on the computer because I'm picturing what it would be like if I'm calling Allison from a plane saying, babe, I love you. Raise our kids well. And here's the thing, those conversations were not about the weather. Those conversations were not about temporal things. Nobody on that plane called their stockbroker. Nobody on that plane called their boss. Nobody on that plane called someone to talk about things that didn't matter. They expressed the deepest words of their souls to each other. They talked about the things that were most important to them. They gave their final wishes. They said their final goodbyes. They spoke in those moments the words that they wanted to be remembered. Some of them spoke words that would be immortalized even if it wasn't their intention. One of the heroes of that story was a guy named Todd Beamer and he tried to call his wife but he couldn't get a hold of her and so he ended up talking to an operator. And, and in that moment, he asked the operator to, to uh, join him in the Lord's Prayer and in reciting Psalm 23. And then he and some other passengers went to go fight off the hijackers and he left the phone. And, and the phone recorded what were his final words where he says, okay, you guys ready? Let's roll. These are words that are pregnant with significance. And this is where Jesus is. He is in his final moments with his inner circle, the night before his death. And so here he speaks the words that he wants to be remembered. He gives his final, most important thoughts. Shortly after he speaks these words, Judas is going to show up with a group of soldiers. So these are quite literally some of the last words that he is ever going to speak to some of these guys before he dies. 
after three years of being together every single day, eating every meal, bunking together, being on mission together. These are the last words some of them will hear from him before the cross. And so in those moments when the most important things rise to the surface, what is it that rises to the surface for Jesus? Unified, shared community between the church and the Godhead. So I want to break down a little bit further exactly what Jesus was talking about. I don't want to just preach this kind of touchy-feely, kumbaya, let's all have a hug and community type of a message. Okay, because I don't want to miss the incredibly important theology of godly community either. And the risk that, that comes about when we talk about these sort of things is that we throw doctrine out the window in an effort to just embrace everyone and everything under a banner of love. But that's not what Jesus is praying for here. Oneness and love and community do not replace the need for the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ, which covers our sin. We cannot look at this passage and say, well, what was most important to Jesus wasn't sin, it was a group hug. Because let's not forget when this conversation takes place. It is right before Jesus pays the ultimate price for sin. So let's not make the mistake of of saying Jesus just wants us to focus on love and unity, not sin. On the contrary, Jesus died to free us from sin so that we could be unified in him. So I want to establish that from the very beginning. We are not throwing out theology. We're not throwing out doctrine. We're we're not throwing out the full gospel so that we can all just hold hands. My goal is to show you that the the foundation of this type of community that, that I'm talking about is the gospel that brings victory over sin. And so that will give us deeper theology, deeper doctrine, and cause us to be closer than we have ever been as we are invited up into it. So, let's examine away. Here is point number one as we talk about the heavenly Rosetto effect. Point number one, oneness is not one this. Oneness is not one this. It's interesting to note here in this passage that Jesus does not pray that every single one of his followers and disciples will be the same. This is not a prayer for political oneness. It is not a a prayer for ideological oneness. It's not a prayer that every single disciple be the same type of person, functioning, thinking, processing in the same ways. It is a prayer for shared community within the Godhead. There's a fairly common, I think, misconception when it comes to unity. And that misconception is, in order for us to be all unified, we all must share common traits. But here's the thing. Even if we don't say that out loud, isn't that how most of us naturally function? 
as people, we tend to be drawn to other people who are like us. That's where the old saying comes from, birds of a feather flock together. As little as we might not want to admit it, people who are similar usually get along and are more likely to actually like each other and spend time with one another. So a lot of us only stick to having relationships with people who are like us. People who look the same as us. People who think the same as us. People with the same style, the same political leanings, etc., etc., etc. And let's be real honest. It, it's no different in most churches. You know one of the reasons why there are hundreds, hundreds of denominations? Because there are hundreds of different flavors of people. And everyone wants to just stick to their own flavor. Now, I'm not trying to dog denominations. There, there are legitimate reasons to have denominational differences. Absolutely. But let's not gloss over that it might have gotten a little bit out of hand, okay? We, we may have an argument for a few dozen. Over a thousand? I don't know about that. And it's not just denominations. I mean, just look at the average congregation of a church in America, regardless of what the denomination is. When you walk into the average church in America, what you will find is a group of people that is most likely just like each other. It has been said that the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. I mean, for us, it's Sunday evening, but you get the point. There's a lot of white churches. There's a lot of black churches. There's a lot of churches with people who dress the same way, who speak their own language. Most have a common style. A majority have similar political leanings. They love the same things or they hate the same things. It's not nearly common enough to have a very diverse body. And so whether we realize it or not, we picture oneness as one this. But that's not what Jesus prayed for. The basis of his prayer for our unity was not similarity. The basis of his prayer was common unity in him. Theologian D.A. Carson uh, puts it like this. He says that ideally the church is not made up of natural friends, but rather natural enemies. This is what he says. He says, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says and what he commands is for them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. A band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You know what one of the, the beautiful things about that is? We can all be so different and I don't even have to like all of you. You don't have to like me. But do we love each other because of a shared love for Jesus' sake? That's why we're here. 
one of the things that, that my wife uh, brings up a lot is, you know, being in the ministry, we see so many times where there's disagreements. We see so many times where, where someone's attending a church and then there's beef and they split. And, and what, what she says all the time is, you know, when we look back at the Bible, when there was only one church in town, you know what you had to figure, you know, you know what you had to do is you had to figure it out. You didn't just go to the next church down the street. There was one church. One. And so whatever your beef was, you got to the bottom of it. You hugged it out. And even if after that you sit on opposite sides of the sanctuary, you love each other because you are natural enemies who have a love together for Jesus. Look no further than Jesus' closest group of friends who are hearing him praying this prayer in this group you have a bunch of dudes from very different backgrounds who would have never been friends otherwise you have blue collar jews you have a white collar tax collector who the jews couldn't stand you have a political insurrectionist you have teenagers Older men, some who were shy, some who were loud. All different tribes and regions of Israel. And when we look at their story in the Gospels, what we find is that they're constantly bickering. They're constantly fighting over which one of them was more important and valuable. They're jockeying for position. They're always trying to convince Jesus of their way. You could not have a more diverse group of Israelites. Outside of Christ, these guys would have hated each other. Probably did. Probably the whole time that they were even together. They're looking across the campfire from the guy that's nothing like them. Like, Jesus, why did you invite this guy? Why is he even here? But they were unified in deep community nonetheless because of one thing. Jesus. The mindset that was built there would be continued in the growth of the early church. As the early church spread, it brought together people that would have never been brought together. Jews and Gentiles, masters and slaves, men and women, Pharisees and sinners, zealots and Romans. These people are natural enemies with nothing in common except Jesus. In this way, the community that we're talking about is nothing like that Italian town of Rosetto. In Rosetto, everyone comes from the same village. They all speak the same language. They all have the same interests. They all have the same taste, the same background, the same everything. And they lived in their own little world, disconnected from the rest of society. And I'm sure it wasn't hard at all for them to be in unified community. That kind of community is easy. It is easy to be with people who are just like you. But the church is not that way. The church is supposed to be made of people from different backgrounds, different nations, languages, upbringings, philosophies, ideologies. What unifies us is not our similarity. What unifies us is our allegiance. Now, that being said, it's also important to establish that community doesn't simply come from ignoring our differences. 
it also doesn't come simply from just celebrating the fact that we are different. In an effort to create diversity, sometimes we try to build unity by just celebrating the fact that we are different and trying to find joy in just diversity itself. But that doesn't work by itself either. We, we can't force community by just throwing together a bunch of different people and telling them to just celebrate the fact that they're different. Um, and we see examples of this, don't we? Anytime you turn on the television, it's, it's a guarantee that you're going to see a commercial that has a black guy, a white woman, a Hispanic straight couple, and a gay Asian all drinking a Coca-Cola together and laughing about something that is so funny. None of us look at that and go, gosh, what, what diverse friendship. I, I bet that they were just all hanging out and said, we love diversity and Coke. Why don't we join together and have a drink? No, that's, that's put on. I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate diversity. We, we definitely should. But what I'm saying is our unity comes neither from just ignoring diversity or celebrating it. Our unity comes from common allegiance to Jesus. So that brings us to our second point. Community is come into unity. Community is come into unity. Come into unity. And this is where the key is. This is the foundation of Jesus' prayer. This, this is where it all comes together. And so this is what we must get right. When Jesus here prays for us to be one, when he prayed for us to have community, it wasn't just a oneness between us. It wasn't just, Father, I pray that they would all just get along. No, what Jesus actually prays is, Father, you and I exist in perfect, eternal, loving community. You and I have that. And so I pray that they would be welcomed in to what we have. This is something that I've said a bunch of times before, even recently. But it bears repeating because I want all of us, all of us to know this by heart. And that is the fact that our God is incredibly unique among the pantheon of gods. There are characteristics of our God that no other idea of God has. The Trinity is one of those characteristics. God being three persons in one does not just experience community. He is community. God in himself exists as relationship. God is relationship. Um, This quote from John Eldridge in his book, Sacred Romance, he says, the story that is the sacred romance begins not with God alone, the author at his desk, but God in relationship. Intimacy beyond our wildest imagination, heroic intimacy. The Trinity is at the center of the universe. Perfect relationship is at the heart of all reality. And that's so important to understand because every other God that is out there by virtue of their nature is needy. Every other God 
is needy. Every other God lacks. And why do I say that? Well, because for any other being in the universe to experience relationship, they need other beings to experience relationship with. Otherwise, they would be alone. Every other conception of God needs lower beings in order to exercise authority. Otherwise, there's no one to exercise authority over. They have a potential for relationship and authority, but without others, they have no way to actualize it. Every other God needs beings in order to show themselves as loving, kind, gracious, or whatever. Otherwise, by themselves, they have no one to be kind, loving, or gracious toward. But not our God. Our God, being three in one, exists already in perfect relationship. And he needs nothing and no one in order to experience those things. He doesn't need anybody else for relationship. He has the perfect relationship in himself. He doesn't need anyone for authority because each member of the Trinity has specific duties and roles, including authority and submission. He doesn't need anyone else to be kind toward, to love, to be gracious toward, because he has all of that already in and of himself. He is the only self sufficient God. What's so incredible to consider is that though he did not need us at all, in order to experience love, kindness, grace, relationship, he wanted us. We're not created out of need, we're created out of a want to welcome us up into that community. Look how Jesus says it in the passage. He says, I I want them, verse 21, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Even though the world doesn't know you, I know you and these know that you've sent me. I have continued, I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is not at all a prayer for us to get along. This is a prayer that we might be unified in the tri-unified God. This is not a prayer that we create community. This is a prayer that we as a church may be invited up into a community that already existed in eternity past. The completely imperfect picture that comes to mind is a scene from my own home. Uh, this has happened a number of times uh, over the years, and it's one of my greatest joys. Allison and I will be laying in bed just having woken up, and we're kind of, you know, rubbing the sleep out of our eyes, and we're just in bed there, snuggling, enjoying each other's presence, and we share this moment just of love. Not, not that kind of love and not, not that moment. That's, that's another time. But here, just snuggling, just enjoying one another's presence. 
And as we're there, we can hear the kids getting up out of their beds. And they come in, and as they always do, they're asking for something to eat. Can you make me breakfast? Can you turn on the TV? Can you do X, Y, and Z for us? And instead, we say, hey, how about instead of that, why don't, you guys want to come up here in bed and snuggle with us? And they're like, yeah. And so they crawl up into bed, and they get under the blankets, and we just lay there as a family, talking and laughing and snuggling. My children did not create that kind of community. They didn't look at each other and say, you know what, let's get along. Though I wish they would sometimes do that. They were welcomed into community. My nine-year-old and six-year-old did not put their heads together and create strategies for diversity and unity. They just are welcomed up into the community that existed in mommy and daddy before they ever were born. My friends, this is the key to community. This is the key to unity. This is the key to reconciliation, to relationship, to intimacy, to satisfaction, to absolutely everything. It is when we are together welcomed up into the community of the Godhead that we can be what God created us to be. Incredibly diverse, but incredibly one. And this is the picture that we get in the book of Revelation, which I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, we have four chapters in the Bible where things are perfect. The first two and the last two. And the picture that we see in the book of Revelation is in heaven. And it says this, After I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, together, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. True community is come into unity. My children, come into unity. All of you that are so separate, come up into unity. And something incredible happens when we experience that kind of community. It not only changes the way that we live, it also creates the most powerful gospel witness that there could possibly be. Because there's something else that is repeated a number of times in this passage. Again, we have six verses here, six verses where Jesus is praying for us. And there's something else that's repeated three times in these six verses. And that is, so that the world may know that you have sent me. He says in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse uh, 23, 
I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. Jesus clearly states here that the greatest gospel witness that we can offer to the world is a shared community within the Godhead. When the world sees it, they want it. I mean, don't you? Don't you want that kind of love and unity? Everyone does. Everyone on earth wants to share a Coke. And it goes to show that this kind of community is not just for us. It's for the world. So that brings us to our third and final point. Brotherhood is for the neighborhood. Brotherhood is for the neighborhood. We talked at length here about how God exists in perfect relationship. He is within himself intimacy and friendship and community. And scripture clearly tells us that man is created in the image of God. Male and female in the image of God he created us. So that tells us that we are created in the image of relationship. In the image of community. In the image of love. Those things are in our DNA. They are in the fibers of our being. We are created to experience it. We long for it. Which is why every song, every movie, every TV show, every book reflects this longing for love. Even in incredibly broken ways. It is no wonder that we want it so badly because we were designed to want it so badly. But we also know that everything besides relationship with God is a cheap substitute. The best that we can come up with in ourselves falls woefully short of the real thing. Satisfaction can only be found in what we were really truly created for. Not just unity, not just community, but community with God. That is the only thing that deeply satisfies, period. You can accomplish no matter what in this world. You can gain whatever. You can fill in the blank with whatever your imagination can conceive and it will fall woefully short of what we were created for, which is unified community with the Godhead. And when the world sees that, when the world looks at us and they see that, when they see us welcomed into that community like a warm blanket, it's then that they say, I want what you guys have. That's when they see it. It's not about arguing apologetics and having slick evangelism presentations or knowing all the answers. Those things have their place. Those things have their time. You guys know that I'm passionate about those things, but those things are not really the central point. The way to reach the world is to present them with what every single one of us desperately longs for. Perfect relationship. And this is played out in a number of ways. God created on purpose certain things in life that were designed to call our attention to this loving community. 
you guys have heard me use the term experiential analogy. An analogy of the Godhead that we experience. And another term for that that we've used is the word shadow. A shadow is cast by something that's greater than itself. And so when you see a shadow, you know that it points to the reality of something greater that casts that shadow. And God created a lot of shadows in this life, among them being things like marriage, friendship, leadership, parenting, family, the church. And what we do so often is we make a mistake of isolating these things and we make them a reality in and of themselves. We make these things the point. We idolize marriage. We idolize friendship. We idolize relationship. And we try to find our satisfaction in those things alone. We try to find our happiness in them. We we try to find our fulfillment in them. But those things can never bring us happiness. Those things are just the shadow There's shadows that that are being cast by the greater thing. And the greater thing is the love of the Godhead. But when we treat those things like the shadows that they are, when, when we allow that to lead us to worship God and experience his life and love together, then the world will see something radically different, radically countercultural, radically attractive. Jesus knew this. That's why out of all the things that he could have prayed for us, he prayed this. And he finishes by praying that the love which the Father has shared with Jesus for all of eternity may be in us. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Have you ever experienced that kind of love? Have you ever experienced that kind of community? Have you ever been invited into that and accepted that invitation to be brought up into that unity? Have you ever committed to building that kind of friendship in the church? I hope that if you haven't, tonight you will. Something very interesting happened in Rosetto, Pennsylvania. This town that set the standard for uh, community in the nation, and in turn, the, the national standard for the longevity of life and, and quality of life in the early 1960s. Well, after a while, things began to change, slowly but steadily. At the beginning of Stuart Wolf's study, he actually predicted that at some point, Rosetto would change. And that is exactly what happened. Before long, first-generation immigrants eventually passed away. Younger generations began to move away for school or for work or opportunities elsewhere. People stopped going to church. In writing in 1980, Wolf said this, We predicted in 1963 that if the social values these people had began to erode, they would lose their relative immunity from heart disease. And that is what happened. 
They weren't going to the Marconi Social Club anymore. Cars changed from Chevys and Fords to Cadillacs. Swimming pools and fancy houses sprouted. Everything changed. And Wolf demonstrated that by 1975, Rosetto's heart attack rate had more than doubled since the beginning of the study in 1961. It equaled the national average. Utopia was lost. Today, Rosetto, Pennsylvania is no different than any other place in America. Quaint, to be sure. Historic, to be sure. But no different. Because any community that is built on anything but the community of the Godhead, no matter how wonderful it may seem, sooner or later, it will fade. It will fall. That perfect person that you're dating, someday you realize they are not so perfect. And you wake up and you look over and say, who the bleep did I marry? That perfect friendship that you thought was so wonderful eventually will hurt you. That perfect job, that perfect accomplishment, that that big thing that you finally achieve, eventually it fades. And eventually you're laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking, there's got to be more than this. There is. Unified community within the Godhead because God will never fail. So it's up to you. Create your own community or be welcomed up into one. The choice is yours. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, I pray for each person here, for each person who's watching live online right now, For each person who may be listening to this recording at a later date, Lord, I pray that each person will be welcomed up into the perfect community of the Godhead. Lord, I pray especially for those who have never accepted that invitation. For people who may have acknowledged your reality, but never welcomed your love into their hearts. For people who might say, I believe in Jesus but who have never experienced the love of Jesus. God, I pray that each person under the sound of my voice would give themselves over completely to that. And if any are in need of doing that for the first time, let tonight be that night. God, I pray that we as a church body would be unified, not because we all like each other, even though most of us do, not because we have shared interests or or, or common um, you know, affinities. I pray that we would be unified in our allegiance to Jesus and that we would have a community that others wish to be welcomed into, that we would have a sense of family that other people see and want to be a part of. Only you can produce that within us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would. God, I pray that as we sing this final song, God, that you would help us to Allow your Holy Spirit to work. That we wouldn't push it off, that we, that we wouldn't give in to the doubts, that we wouldn't say, well, I'll just think about that later. God, I pray that if there are things that you need to work on us, that we would let you do that work. That we would have the, the courage 
to step out in faith, to, to obey whatever you call us to. Lord, I pray that our hearts would worship you for welcoming us up into that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and uh, sing our